0: This is High Motor by BetMGM. It's the Thursday, June 3rd episode of High Motor by BetMGM. Andrew Dowdy and Chase Kitty here. It's the first episode of our summer football preview series that we talked about, kind of previewing the preview on Monday's episode. We're going to have more than 12 weeks, about 12, 13-ish weeks of college football and NFL content. Two episodes per week, every week, comes out to about 25 episodes Mm. from now until Mm. week zero of the college football season. I didn't write down, that's what, like Saturday the 27th? It's pretty much right up
1: to the first games, yeah.
0: When are we going to start having like week negative one? I mean, no, I I, I kind of say it as a joke, but what's stopping San Jose State from saying, we're going to play August 20th, give us the ESPN time slot? Somebody's going to do I mean the that.
1: FCS already does that, right? So I mean
0: cuz they usually do like one game. They did like Jacksonville State a couple years ago that first, it was it was super early like August 20th.
1: So, maybe we just need uh we need like some some real thirsty G5 team to be like, "We're doing we're doing August
0: 10th." How do you like that? New Mexico is doing August 10th. Today on the show, the NFC South. We're going to talk power structure, win totals, Maybe some Week 1 numbers if we like them, where they sit right now. Where that division sits three months from the 2021 season. That's going to be the first of eight divisional previews this summer. And how these episodes will go, the bulk will be the preview. Maybe even the entirety in some cases. But we will mix in some timely content off the top. Whenever Aaron Rodgers decides to make his decision, if we're not doing the NFC North that day, we'll lead with Aaron Rodgers and then we'll do the NFC West or a different NFL college football topic or whatever. In this case, there is some money to be made over in Paris uh, over the next two weeks of the French Open. It just so happens that you, sir, are steeped in the world of tennis betting. What has your attention right now in the French Open? Like, Why should a... I don't know how many tennis fans we have listening. Why should a non-tennis fan care and check open... There's there's actually a a live stream on BetMGM.com. Why should a non-tennis fan... Bet on the French Open. Where do you want to start with this?
1: First of all, let me just let me cut the French Open in half for our listeners and for you. Uh you got men's and women's, right? And the men's French Open is kind of boring. It hasn't been interesting in a long time. Nadal kills everybody. He's getting up there. He has some injury problems. So we're we're sort of in the tail end of this men's French Open is mind-numbingly boring period. But that's that's kind of what the situation is with the men's. I don't really bet the men. I mean, I'll bet individual games early on, but I, I don't I don't bet futures in the men's because it's kind of pointless. Like, you just stay away from that. The women's is much more interesting. Okay, so you've got three really really good players, two of whom are specifically good clay players: Simona Halep, Naomi Osaka, Petra Kvitova, all of whom already done, and we're talking like. Early in the French Open, right? We've only played one or two games apiece. Halep retired before the tournament even started because she has like an ankle injury that she messed up uh, in May, so she didn't even play a match. Now Naomi Osaka has this kind of strange public uh, feud with the WTA right now because she she said. You know, hey, I, I don't really want to do media availability anymore. They ask the same questions. It's not good for my mental health. I think there's a wide range of opinions that people have on whether or not, you know, that's good. That makes any sense. Whether this is the future of professional athletes. Like, that's kind of a whole non betting conversation that's really interesting. Uh, but she actually just, she, she did, she had a walkover on, on her recent match. She just was like, hey, I'm out. Uh, and I think that was probably her, the, the WTA said they find her $15,000 for not talking to the media. And they kind of said like, Hey, like there are some pretty baseline rules that you need to follow to be a professional tennis player. And I think this is her kind of calling them on the bluff saying, okay, well then I'm not, I'm not going to play in this tournament. So enjoy your lower ratings. Cause I'm not going to play. So like I said, that's kind of a conversation away from tennis. Maybe we talk about that a little later if you want or in a different episode, but that's not really a gambling thing. Uh, And then Petra Kvitova, uh, in kind of a weird um, play off the Osaka thing, she suffered an injury during media availability, which I don't know if if that's like really what happened and why she withdrew or if it's a solidarity thing, because obviously it's very unusual to get hurt and have to withdraw from a tournament. During media
0: availability, I mean, how do you do that? I don't. I've never watched media availability for the French Open, but evidently she fell as you're walking in. You fall. She
1: fell while like during a media availability session. So uh, some people have interpreted that as a solidarity with Naomi Osaka thing. Maybe she really is hurt and is is trying to like convalesce before you know. It's a, tennis is a long season. It's like nine and a half months long. So you do have to sit some stuff out if you get hurt because, you know, there's always another tournament coming up. You've still got Wimbledon around the corner and the U.S. Open, you know, in the late summer. So there's still two majors left on the board. If you got to withdraw from this one, you got to withdraw from this one. But it is kind of a really weird scenario. Anyway, all of that is important to say that uh, certain portions of the bracket are very wide open because you've already had three very high-profile players withdraw from the French Open. Now, Naomi Osaka, very highly rated player, not a clay expert, right? She she doesn't usually do very well at Roland Garros. But the other two are very highly rated. Uh, Halep and, and Kavitova are, are two very good clay players. So when you get into the bracket, you're kind of looking now at where where do I want to look? Where are their holes? Where Where is there an absence of seeded players? Like, if you look at the bracket right now, uh, a lot of the really good remaining players are all in the top quarter of the bracket. Uh, Muchova, Pliskova, Ash Barty, uh, Svitlina, like, they're all in that top quarter of the bracket, and they're all just going to beat each other up, and only one player can obviously come out of that portion. So I was looking at the bracket and doing all my handicap stuff uh, over the weekend and, and into today, uh, on Wednesday. And... First of all, when you look at the odds, if you look at the, the women's French Open uh, odds at BetMGM, uh, Iga Swiatek, who is a Polish phenom, very young, just turned 20 last week. She is killing people right now. She just won the, uh, the, the ATP Rome 1000 tournament, which is sort of like the last big clay tournament before the French Open. She double bageled a very good player in the final which means she won six six love six love like that's unheard of nobody does that and how'd she do
0: in the uh in the belgrade open
1: yeah well i i don't know that she played in that she didn't but, make that one yeah i don't know if she played in that one uh, <laughs> but i actually think they play at the same time so you can't play in both of them but she is killing people she's a very talented uh clay player specifically she won last year's french open And she is a heavy favorite right now to repeat. I think she's plus 175 right now to win the French Open. And like the next closest player is plus 500 or something like that. So we're talking about her being the heavy favorite. And on top of the fact that high profile players have already withdrawn. And on top of the fact that she's really good. And she's particularly good on clay. And she's the defending champion. And she's so in form right now. She also has a really easy draw. Like I was talking about how there were all those players in the top quarter of the bracket. There's almost nobody good in her portion of the bracket, in her little quarter. So she probably is not going to have to be really challenged until maybe maybe the semifinals of this bracket. And and when you get talking about these major tournaments, the brackets are huge. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of players. So the fact that she is just kind of going to be on cruise control until the semifinals, pretty big deal. Uh, great for her odds. I think if you like her, I, I totally understand why you'd want to bet on her. Uh, it, it's worth buying a ticket probably. It's it's probably a better use of your money to just bet her game to game. I think you'd probably get a better return. Just, I, I mean, obviously, I don't know what all the, the numbers are going to be between now and the finals for her, but it seems like you'd probably get better return just slamming her in individual matches. Uh, but maybe you'd like to hold the future as well. I think... In terms of value, if you go down to the bottom portion of the bracket and you're looking at the women's bracket there, I think uh, Vendrasova, I think, is probably the ticket you want to hold because I think she can at least make a push to the quarterfinals or to the semifinals. This is sort of the portion of the bracket that Naomi Osaka is in. There's not a lot of other seeded players. So I think she is a very highly rated clay player. She could make a push. And then maybe if you're holding her ticket at plus 3,300, you might be able to hedge off of that, given some of the late game matchups or the late match, late tournament matchups. I should say, uh, you could hedge off of that, given who she ends up playing uh, in the later matches.
0: I want to ask you about live betting for the second half of this conversation because we haven't talked live betting that much. Maybe that should be something we add to the list before football season. Live betting during football. We haven't talked about live betting that much on this show, and obviously, it's it's extremely entertaining to do it and. You had mentioned before we hit record here that there are actually a lot of opportunities in the French Open for live betting that you don't really see elsewhere in different sports just because how the odds are structured, where the book puts them. What did you mean by that? And how can myself, for example, layman in tennis, how can I go on and identify that kind of value when I personally don't have any experience betting tennis? I know very little about tennis.
1: Yeah, so... I don't know that I would advise it if you know absolutely nothing about tennis, because it's going to be hard to know uh, which matches are over. Tennis is big on momentum. Like it's a huge deal. It, you know, two of the biggest things you have to know to bet tennis are who's good on what surface who, and you know, who's in form and that kind of thing, sort of the player specific things. And then there's just a feel to watching a tennis match of, of where the momentum is. And some of it's obvious and some of it isn't. And and when you talk about betting tennis live, you know, the, the odds swing so heavily when a set has been completed, when somebody has won or lost a set. In women's, for example, even in the majors, it's it's best of three. And so when somebody goes up, takes a 1-0 set lead, even somebody who was a moderate favorite, who, uh, a modest favorite, who might have been, you know, minus 250, their odds are going to jump to like minus 1,200 because you're playing best of three and they have one set in hand. And from the book's perspective, it does make sense to do that because you have to prevent all these people, you know, maybe maybe like yourself who are not tennis savants but can do basic best of three math uh, from coming in and just slamming the person who's already up one to zero. They have to lay a live number that's going to prevent people from just coming and doing that non-stop. They have to really make it hurt if you bet live and guess wrong. So that's why the numbers go up. But what that ends up doing is creating an opportunity on the other side. You know, yes, it's powerful to be up 1-0 to zero in a best-of-three match. But people do come back and win the other side. People do come back and win the second set and then win the third set and oftentimes the player that wins the second set does win that third set because tennis is all about momentum and how you're building towards something it's such a mental sport too where you you see people all the time especially on the men's side if you get broken in a final set in like a set five situation and you go down two games to zero in a final set You'll see people just kind of throw in the towel and get smashed six to one in that last set, and it happens all the time. So there is kind of a give and a take in tennis, and you do have to know some of the idiosyncrasy idiosyncrasies. I think I just combined two words. Uh, the some of the idiosyncrasies of of the sport, but there are opportunities on the live line to bet the person that's down one set uh, if you feel like. This is a person who is still in the match. Uh, But again, it does require a little bit of tennis knowledge. And you can't just come off the street and do it. You kind of do need to know a little bit. Sorry to disappoint you, Andrew Dowdy, but we are sticking with the NBA playoffs for the Airhorn Pick this particular episode. And I don't know if you watched any basketball on Tuesday night. Uh, The
0: Lakers are done. Okay, they're done. I'm just surprised you're going back to the NBA. Well, after that 28-point quarter, crushed. Oh my! The uh, the over/under bet. Uh, it was at game four.
1: I think I texted you. I have never seen. I don't think I've ever seen a 28-point quarter.
0: Yeah, I mean, because wasn't in my
1: it adult NBA watching life?
0: The, the total was somewhere around like 75 like in the first half. Yeah. It was 211.
1: It was 211. And the, the final score went to, like, 208, and they scored 28 points in the second quarter.
0: So I'm surprised you're going back to the well after taking that beating, but... Well, hey, you know, rip. sometimes you lose. And, All right, what do you got? So,
1: we are going back to a Lakers game. There is no reasonable explanation for why the Lakers are favorites in Game 6. Anthony Davis might play, he might not play. We're recording this Wednesday evening. I really have no idea. I don't think it matters. They're not a healthy team. The only reason the Lakers are favorites right now is because of marketplace principles and because of history. There is not one basketball argument you can make to me that the Lakers are better than the Suns right now. And I know this has been kind of a weird up-and-down series where we have written obituaries for both teams at different points, and that's kind of one of the weirder parts about the playoffs is the ebbs and the flow and all. But I feel pretty confident about this, all right? The Lakers opened as three-point favorites in this game. I get that it's LeBron in an elimination game, and you're betting against a guy who, when his team has made the playoffs, he's made the finals. Like, When was the last time a LeBron team made the playoffs didn't make the finals? 2009? Why are you asking
0: me this? I don't I know mean, why you're asking me.
1: I, I'm just speaking rhetorically. I, I understand that, that all of that is is prologue to this point spread, but there are no basketball reasons why the Lakers should be favored in this game. Give me the Suns. I took them at plus three. The line is down to plus two. It might be down to one and a half by the time this podcast is live. Take them to win on the money line, for all I care. The Lakers are not winning this game, uh, and and I feel pretty strongly about that. This is one of the more animated uh, air horn picks that I think you're going to hear from me. Uh, I, I wish we had, we, uh, we had given out that White Sox banger that I had few days ago that I texted you about, and I put on Twitter, and I like sent out the bat signal to everybody that entails me. Yeah, and we needed that two runs, I
0: think, and we needed two runs, what, in the 8th to make that work, or the 7th to make that work?
1: All caches are the same, Andrew Dowdy. We're
0: sitting there 1-1, I think it was the 7th or the 8th, sitting there 1-1 against a horrific team. They're playing the Orioles?
1: They're playing my Orioles, who had lost about 13 in a row. And we're pitching a bad lefty against a White Sox lineup that just mashes on lefties.
0: And then you get that 3-1 win, ticket cashes, doesn't matter. All cashes are the same, baby. We're doing the NFC South today. And I, as I was preparing for this episode over the offseason, I kind of went back to what we talked about in the NFC West, where all four teams seem to be going for something to some degree. And I kept going back to that because the NFC South... It seems like three of these teams aren't really going for it. Like, one of these teams, the Falcons, are entering year one of a organizational overhaul. New coach, new general manager, new scouts, all that kind of stuff. They're saying it's not. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I mean, Arthur Smith, that's just coach speak. When I think he said they hired the wrong guys if they think this is going to be a rebuild. I just don't buy that or I just disagree with the insistence that they're trying to win now. I don't think... Not taking Justin Fields or not taking a quarterback at four means they're serious about winning. There's also one team, the Panthers, year two of a major overhaul. And after a year in which they didn't really have any on-field identity plans, they, they admitted that. They didn't know what they had. They were going to use that year to kind of figure it out. You have the Saints who have several holes in several spots. It feels like they're rebuilding on the fly without admitting what this team really is. And again, we talked about the NFC West a couple of weeks ago kind of resetting the table before all, all um, before the summer, with all four teams to some extent going for something this year. In the NFC South, it feels like only one team, the Bucs, are really doing that. The Saints might think they are, but I really don't think that they are going for anything this year. Are we seeing eye-to-eye on that very broad assessment intro of this division, or is there some room for violent discussion on those three points?
1: I think we mostly agree. I think the only thing that I would add and I don't even know that you're going to disagree with this, but maybe just a a contextual observation. I think you're probably right to say that the other 3 teams around the Bucks are all kind of not going for it if you want to if you want to call it that. But I think they're not going for it looks and feels a little different for each case. And I think the uh the the lumps on that are going to dictate some of my positions on, on which teams I want to bet for or against or to make the playoffs or to miss the playoffs or, or all that. Because I do think they are very different in how they are not going for it.
0: Well, these are also not three terrible teams. Not one of these teams has a terrible roster. The, the Falcons have terrible salary cap issues still. that I think it's probably going to take a couple of years to resolve. But not one of these three teams is terrible. And the teams who finished at the bottom of their division, the the Falcons and the Panthers last year, they were not nearly as bad as their record suggested last year. The Panthers were not a five-win team. They were better than a five-win team. The the Falcons were better than a four-win team. And I think that is probably what is driving their win totals this year a little bit higher than what you would think. And I think that that is what's kind of pushing that number a little bit above it. And the 17th game helps, sure. But neither team got significantly... Not even significantly. Neither team really got better this offseason. So that being said...
1: I don't know that I agree with that part, but we can get into that later.
0: No, get into it right now. Which team do you think got better this offseason of either either of those, or all three of those teams, not just the Falcons and the Panthers? There's an argument
1: to be made that both the Falcons and the Panthers got better this offseason. Uh, I think the Falcons added... A definite plus at head coach. I think we know what Arthur Smith can do offensively. But and long so, term.
0: I'm fine with saying that long sure. term, but like and this this you, year though.
1: If you believe, if you are somebody who who is anchored yourself in the position, and I, I haven't, and I don't think you have, but there are people that definitely have done this, that Kyle Pitts is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer and maybe one of the greatest tight ends ever. I don't like to throw stuff like that around before you play a game, but there are people that have said that, and they're generally people that really understand football. So if you believe that you have added a first ballot Hall of Famer to the team, and that tight end is a position where you can come in and be very good very quickly. So if you believe that, I feel like you have to think, that offense is going to open up, and it's going to open up quickly. I think that alone makes them better than a four-win team.
0: I don't know that I necessarily dis. I, I, I agree that I, I just don't see the point of putting that out there. Like, why do we need to say Kyle Pitts is going to be a first-ballot Hall of Famer? I mean, we're talking, I mean, that's like an eight- to ten-year. You're talking about like a Travis Kelsey career, basically. And Travis Kelsey was fine right off the bat, but I also kind of disagree. I think that a tight end can come in and make an impact. Like we saw an, an Evan Ingram come in and have a big impact, but history also says that rookie tight ends typically don't produce. They usually don't meet their projections. I'm not sure if I'm willing to put Kyle Pitts in that bucket because we just haven't seen a time. mean like Ingram is, is the closest like I think versatility athletic ish player that we can even compare Kyle Pitts to in terms of what he could bring to an offense and where he could fit. So I'm not sure that I even care about the the notion, or I guess it's just a fact, that rookie tight ends usually don't live up to their production because Kyle Pitts is so unique. I don't know if—I agree that Arthur Smith is an upgrade. I'm concerned this year, the first year, when they did not make any noticeable moves because they have so many salary cap issues, they didn't fix the secondary at all that was horrendous last year. So bad. So I have a hard time saying that just by adding Kyle Pitts this year will be better because I think this year will be a lot of what the Panthers went through last year where they publicly admitted several times, especially on defense, we don't know what we really have here. We don't. They didn't say like we don't know what we're doing scheme-wise, but they essentially admitted we need to figure out what we have on this team, where all these pieces fit, so that moving forward we can be a better team as opposed to shoving a square peg in a round hole and I think that's what the Falcons are going to use this. I don't know if they're just delusional or, again, it's just coach speak, but I don't see where the Falcons got better. And that that's one of the numbers that I, I only like essentially two numbers from the NFC South betting right now. I'm under 7.5 for the Falcons. You thought I was going to go with the Panthers' win total. I'm going under 7.5 for the Falcons because there are just – you talked, uh, I think, after the schedule release about the key of toss-up games – like where can you see that window for a team? Could they go five and twelve as the floor, or could they go, I don't know, eight and nine as the ceiling. I have to get used to these seventeen game numbers. So with the Falcons, there are just there are too many toss-up games and not enough I love their chances of winning this game. And when you have that many toss-up games, when you have a new coaching staff, a new front office, this many holes across the roster, I mentioned a horrendous secondary, a completely new system on both sides of the ball. Salary cap issues that, that prevented them from not, like, adding major impact players, but just adding and plugging holes that needed to be plugged. I just need to go 7-10 and 10 to win this. Like, that that's the ceiling here. With the latter third of that schedule, I'm just not seeing many teams that would be packing it in. I mean, they're going to need, I'm looking at the schedule, Jacksonville game is week 12. They're going to need to, to, in order to hit eight, So even if that's win number 6 for them in Jacksonville Week 12, they're 6-5 and after that game. They would still need two more wins from Tampa, Carolina, San Francisco, Detroit, Buffalo, and New Orleans. I'm not even that high on New Orleans, but I still think New Orleans would probably have something to play for in Week 18. Detroit probably not, Carolina questionable, but that would only be Week 14. My point being is, like, this Falcons team has to somehow get to 6-5, and in my opinion, with a Week 12 win over the Jaguars, with a transitioning team that might be jelling a little bit more by week 12. But I'm just not seeing where the Falcons added enough pieces. And even if they stay more healthy than they were last year, like where is an eight and nine record for this Falcons team? That's what I don't get.
1: Uh, I I agree with you. I don't think it's the, I don't think I feel strongly enough about it to bet it, but I think your handicap is right on.
0: I think it's the most, I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm going to take this number right now, but it's the number that I feel most comfortable with in this division right now.
1: I I think I would prefer no playoffs at minus 225 because even if they get somehow to like eight and nine and they win a bunch of shootouts or something, I just don't see this as a playoff team, even, even with seven teams from the NFC now, now making it. So That's, I think, at a reduced payout, obviously, but I think I would rather have that.
0: I think that's more of like a mental thing for me is, I mean, with a 17th game, with a new playoff structure this year, it's almost a mental thing of where I can't picture what a wild card, they're not winning this division, what would a wild card team look like under the new playoff format that we saw last year with a 17th game? I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around like the profile of and I'm sure I could actually sit on a map it out, but like what a nine and eight Falcons team, where do they sit in the playoff landscape in the NFC? I think that's just going to take me a while. And maybe we'll circle back to this with the predictions episode in August. Once my mind has kind of had time to wrap around what that profile would look like. So I'm just leaning more toward them not winning eight games, which I think is a really big reach for this team. I don't know why that number is so high.
1: Andrew, do you know who won the NFC South last year?
0: Saints won the NFC South.
1: The Saints won the NFC South last year. They're not
0: winning the NFC South this year.
1: I, I would think not. And I think I'll make one pro Saints point here before I totally shit all over them. I do think particularly at the end of last year, you weren't getting a lot of great production out of Drew Brees. And so whoever slides in and plays a lot of quarterback here, I think they could actually end up as a... like on aggregate, a net positive in quarterback play. But on principle, I cannot take anything good with this Saints team, all right? Their cap situation is a mess. I know that's not a reason to bet against them on the field,
0: but it, but it kind of is. It, it like kind of, I think of is, you, right. You see that for the offseason, like I mentioned with the Falcons. Like, I'm not expecting the Falcons to make some, like, massive splash, but if you didn't have those cap walls, which the Saints also have, like, I think that we've seen that through the lack of moves they've made to just improve the spots that are problem areas for them like a little. Like, give me somebody on the defensive Mm -hmm. line. And I get that we're all talking about Marcus Davenport and interrupted you here, but like I think that it it is fair to say their cap issues have prevented them from doing this and will prevent them from adding whatever over the next three months.
1: And I think it's probably going to make them sellers at the deadline if things are not going well, which I I expect things will not be going well. Uh, So there's that, I think. They they have a really tough start to the season. I mean, their first like five or six games: Packers at Panthers, at Patriots, Giants at Washington, at Seattle, Tampa.
0: Yeah, like where are that's, the where are four wins there? Like, show me four wins. I think they'd probably have to get in order to get this number of nine.
1: That's a tough. That's a tough stretch, man. Like at Washington, that's the kind of game that I think if you're a Saints fan, you go. Well, come on. I mean, we can get that. That's not an easy one, man. That's not a given. Like that, Washington actually has a history of of weirdly like beating New Orleans when they're not supposed to. And I don't even know that they. I think Washington might be favored to win that game when we get to week, you know, five or whatever that is. Uh, I, I think the Giants at home, like, probably should win that one. But I think they could get pushed there. I think at Carolina could be tough for them. I think. Green Bay at home in week one, Aaron Rodgers might come back on another like fury mode and murder them. I mean, so this we don't know a lot about this team and they're playing that first place schedule. They might come out of the gate and go two and five, be sellers at the trade deadline. They might not sniff this nine number. I mean, they might not even be close. So yeah, they've got some winnable games down the stretch, but you're still talking about, you know, in the final month and a half of the season, a game with Buffalo going to Tampa, having to play Miami, I, road divisional games that, you know, you'd think the Saints might be better than the Falcons, but it's still a road divisional game. So you don't know. I think this nine number is, I really struggle to see the Saints going 10 and seven with the schedule. I think the no playoffs at minus 130, is uh is a fair investment so i i would i would lean pessimistic with the saints as well uh it's not just the falcons
0: i think you're talking me into this number and i don't know if i didn't want to touch it because i think a push seems highly likely here and i'm not going to tie up my money for whether i bet it now or in august or september i'm not gonna let my money just sit there for six months to get a push out of it but I mean, like you mentioned that opening stretch and you kind of went into like middle of the season. Once you even get past Seattle, like you said, you still have Tampa. You're still going to Tennessee and I have a lot of issues with what Tennessee has done over the last six months, but that's still a tough game. You get Buffalo. Maybe you get a healthy Dallas team with a better secondary. You go to Tampa. You get an improving Miami team. It's like I have a really hard time seeing them get to 10 wins, but at the end of the day, I don't know how much stock to put into it's the Saints. You still have Kamara, you still have Michael Thomas, you still have a couple of talented pieces on defense. I don't know how much that's just going to override what I'm seeing from them from a football standpoint, more of the gut feeling of, like I mentioned last week, uh, it was the Clemson-Georgia game we were talking about. I think Clemson was a three-point favorite, and I basically said to you, I could totally see Georgia winning this game, but until I see it, stealing something that you've mentioned a lot. Until I see it, I have a hard time believing that Georgia can win a big game like that. Until I see like New Orleans just truly suck, and I don't know if 8-9 means that you truly suck, I have a hard time betting on that. So I'll probably spend the next couple of months actually looking more into that and seeing what part of that kind of overweighs uh, my decision on that. Staying with the Saints, so the first number I liked a lot was the Falcons under. The second number I like a lot... Is that week one line that you mentioned? Packers at Saints, Packers plus three. We're both of the belief that Rodgers will be back. I don't know that with 100% certainty, but if I had to bet one way or the other, I feel pretty good about these coming back. With Rodgers, you're giving me three points for a Packers team against a team with an uncertain quarterback situation, a shit defensive line in week one. Like I'm more than happy to roll the dice if you're giving me three points on the road against a team that we are pegging roughly at 500. Like I will gladly take that number right now.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I think actually I might even go for the money line win. Uh, I mean, if you really want to get into it, uh, I, I can... can we
0: find some disagreement here on on something with the South? Sure, I'll give you something we're going to disagree on. Great, I've
1: been holding on to this. Please. I, this Look, this is the first divisional preview we've done. So it's hard to say this with supreme confidence. But I think one of my favorite bets of the entire divisional series we're about to do might be this. Carolina Panthers to make the playoffs plus 260. Now I'm going to tell you why. But yeah. I, want your, I want your immediate reaction to that statement.
0: So before we hopped on, I told you that I'm just not that interested in the South from an entertainment standpoint. I think it was also on that resetting the table we were talking about which division we thought was the most entertaining. I would put the NFC South just down there because I don't, I have a hard time being interested in this division on the field. My, my biggest curiosity, going to your part there, my biggest curiosity of this entire division is the next step of this Panthers rebuild. I don't know if just because I love Matt Rule. I like their personnel moves. like that they're taking their time with this. I, I'm still going to watch the Bucks and the Saints. I'm still going to watch the Falcons and the Saints. I'm still going to bet on this division more than likely. I probably will end up taking that Falcons under total. But of everything in this division, the most curiosity I have is the Panthers off the field rebuild. I don't know if my curiosity in that has me like semi-rooting for the Panthers on the field. But I like that's a big step forward. And I get that they weren't as bad as five and eleven suggests. Like they went to Green Bay and played the Packers very well. I think they had like five one score losses last year, something like that. That was more of a seven and nine team. I just you're saying that the Panthers are going to go ten and seven in this division, where we're not seeing really any auto wins, and against a schedule where I'm not seeing that many auto wins, and I'm seeing again a lot of toss ups for a young team breaking in a new quarterback. What's the number two hundred sixty?
1: So their their win total is seven and a half, and the make the playoffs number to make the playoffs it's plus two hundred sixty to miss the playoffs it's minus three hundred fifty. The, the only NFC team that has a bigger payout to make the playoffs is the Detroit Lions.
0: So, you're, so instead of taking the Panthers over 7.5, you're basically saying... Oh, I might saying, do that too. Okay, so it, let's just pretend <laughs> that you you do or do not do that. You're basically saying, so with that bet, you obviously win if, if they win eight or nine games. In order to make the playoffs, more than likely... You in the NFC, you're go probably
1: going ten and seven. To you're
0: probably going ten and seven. Yep. So you're taking eight and nine out of the equation and saying that's enough to give me whatever it is, another one sixty on the juice or something like that, to go ten and seven. Like that's essentially the bet that you're making. To simplify this, I would say that's a
1: fair, uh, fair way so to you, frame you're that. You're saying
0: yeah. give me the two wins for an extra one sixty in value. That that's kind of where I don't necessarily agree that that's worth it. If I'm taking the Panthers on anything, I would take the over. I think you're getting greedy with 260. I don't think the Panthers are there yet. So let me make my case. Number
1: one, let, let's start with quarterback. So you, you they won five games last year, as you've already said. Like They basically said they weren't really playing football last year. They were just seeing what they had. Won five games doing that.
0: And they're fun to watch. Last year, it was like they one are. of those rebuilding college football teams where they were fun to watch even when they lost.
1: There's a, a little, a little bit of East Carolina, mm. and like, yeah. hey, you guys aren't very good, but you're fun to watch. So, we've we've now got Sam Darnold on the Carolina Panthers. Is there is there a is there a bigger uh, reversal of fortunes than Sam Darnold? Going from that Jets roster last year and that Jets coaching staff to the Carolina Panthers with Matt Rule and Joe Brady,
0: I'm trying to think of another example in NFL history where a quarterback has <laughs> been discarded, but upgraded their situation that much. I mean, that this is er- like this early in their career with with so much like so much reward that he could get out of this. Yeah, that, I can't think of a better example than that.
1: That is, I mean, talk about a turnaround. So you have got that, and I th- I think I don't think it's crazy to think that that Sam Darnold, especially once he gets a few games under his belt with with Rule and the Brady and and all the stuff that's going on in Carolina, I think he could be pretty good this year. I'm not saying he's going to win the MVP. I'm not saying he's going to throw for
0: six thousand yards. No, but he's like, like that guy you pick up in week eight of fantasy. Yeah, he goes when you're for like twenty eight. Oh, okay, and then you and then you hang on to him, giving him a couple spot starts, maybe week thirteen, right. week fourteen. He's that guy. He, he he's. I think he's. I think he's actually.
1: He could be a little bit better than that.
0: He's like we. He's like year two of Trubisky late season where he's putting up some fantasy points and you're saying, oh, maybe.
1: I think maybe a little better than that. Let's talk about the schedule. So for all the shit I gave New Orleans for how bad their schedule is, listen to this, all right? Carolina, week one, the Jets at home. Revenge game, Sam Darnold revenge game, right out of the gate. Uh, the Saints have to go to the Jets in like week 15 Which is, I don't think the Jets are ever going to be like some impossible win. But if you're going to play them, I'd definitely rather play them at home in week one than on the road in week 14 or whatever it is. Okay, Jets, Saints at home, at the Texans. We all know my feelings about the Texans. At Dallas, uh, tough game, probably a loss. Eagles at home, Vikings at home. At Giants, at Falcons, Patriots at home at Cardinals, Washington at home, at Miami. And then they get their buy. So they get that late bye, and I think things pick up in the middle of the season, sort of that October-November stretch. But they have a very friendly schedule for the first five or six weeks. They've got four of the first six games at home. I think that's friendly to them. I think given the challenges that they have, breaking in a lot of new pieces still, trying to figure out who they are, I think they... They can string together wins. And I think ultimately they're going to be one of those teams where they're probably not as good as their record. But I do think they could flirt with the 6 or 7 seed by the season's end. They could be legitimately good by December. Not great, but, you know, decent to good. And I think they could be in contention for a playoff spot. And at 260, if you're telling me they're going to have a chance, they're going to be in the mix, they're going to have a shot, I think
0: it's worth it. I think you're being a little loose with they're going to be in the mix. I think they're I think they're in the mix to be in the mix. And at plus 260 that that's just not enough for me. If if we're talking 350 400 fine. You said that was the second worst in the NFC. Second
1: worst in the NFC.
0: I don't think that's enough value for me. I have one more longer term big picture question to wrap this up unless you have anything else.
1: Uh just a note, we've already talked about this, but I'll repeat myself uh from a previous episode. Take the over with Tampa. Take over an eleven and a half. Uh normally this is something I would I would tell you against. I would have a real big brain moment about how, oh, actually you should bet against the Super Bowl with uh, reigning Super Bowl champion winning games, right? That sounds more like me, but I broke this down on a previous podcast. Uh Super Bowl champions, most of the time, you know, six out of the last ten years, they go twelve and four are better. I think the schedule is friendly. Tampa brings everybody back. I do think we are remembering with rose-colored glasses how good they were last regular season. They were not a great regular season team. They figured it out in the playoffs. But they still went 11-5 and last year and lost a lot of games that I feel like this year they could win. So, you know, when Tom Brady's a million years old, you know, there's you always run the risk of, hey, maybe he's going to get hurt and, and you know, his luck's finally going to run out and then they're going to have to, you know, your ticket's going to be burnt at that point. It's not even, well, maybe they can, there's no maybe, your ticket's done. But take the over. It, it's a it's a good bet. It's, uh it, it's that number's not high enough. It should probably be 12 and a half.
0: Yeah, and on that note, really quickly, you had mentioned, uh, I think we were looking at week one college football lines last week when you said, maybe take this Alabama number right now against Miami, because I think it was 14 and a half now, because over the next three months, the hype train is going to hit. With all the college football preview magazines, all of the preseason top 25s, training camp, all that stuff, where you talk about all these five stars they have and Bryce Young and everything, that number is probably going to go up. In this case of the Bucks, it's not going down. Yeah, it's like, not going this down. This number is not going to go down from 11.5, but it sure as shit could go up to 12. And the difference between 11.5 and 12, even with the extra game, is massive. So if you're going to take this number, I think you have to take it right now today, correct? I I agree. One longer-term, big-picture question to wrap it up here. Let's say three years down the road, what does the power structure look like? We're not going to get deep into analysis of this, but rank these teams three years down the road in terms of, like, however you want, health of the franchise, moving forward, where they sit competitively, are they a contender, et cetera. Like, generally, big-picture, kind of like we've done for Neighborhood Series, where do these four teams sit three years down the road in order?
1: Three years down the road. Uh, one Carolina. Two. Tampa. God, that feels weird. But, uh, I mean, their roster is is still going to be good three years from now. They're not going to have totally blown up their roster in three years. Uh, one Carolina, two Tampa, three... Atlanta for New Orleans, and and I don't love putting New Orleans in that four spot because I really do like Sean Payton, but it feels like their cap situation is going to get way worse before it gets better.
0: Completely agree on that. I think think it's one, two, three, four, exactly how you put it for me, and I think that the Saints are an an easy four. Um, I mentioned that I have a hard time seeing them be that bad this year, but I think it's almost like a refusal to admit where your franchise currently sits because you have a couple of mega stars on offense that you're not accepting where your personnel truly lies and what your two-deep looks like moving forward. That I think that three years down the road, the Saints' refusal to admit and look themselves in the mirror right now is going to bite them in the ass, and they could be sitting down there for a while. Anything else here?
1: Uh, good, good opening for the divisional round. I think, uh, and you guys let us know, uh, you know, if, if there's some, you know, some angle, some aspect, uh, that that we can cover, or, uh, maybe you want to get in, get in one of our DMs and talk about a specific number, uh, run scenarios. Hey, whatever, uh, whatever you guys want. We're around.
0: Yeah, as we get rolling with these summer football previews, if you have any mailbag questions for summer football content, if you think of a good idea, a good question to ask, like that last question, I don't know if we'll ask that for every division. I think it's particularly interesting for the South, where those teams will be three years from now. Uh, but if you have any segment ideas, any mailbag questions, any betting stuff, at High Motor Pod on Twitter, at High Motor Pod. We are back on Monday. That will be Monday, June 7th for the next uh, episode. We're not planning these out, really. So, like if you are just really fired up for the AFC West, shoot us a DM. Tweet at us at High Motor Pod. Maybe we'll do the AFC West that week. Thanks for giving us a piece of your week. We will see you back on High Motor by BetMGM on Monday.